I don't have a place necessarily to tell you to turn to begin this morning because I'm going to be speaking uh, from 1 John in the book of Revelation and, and also just kind of giving a little bit of an overview. Uh, but as we come to this last week in the writings of John, especially um, his letters and the Revelation, we, we come to the end of the story of the first century church. Uh, God has been so gracious and kind to give us a word about how that church began and uh, about 75 years or at least 65 years of its history, uh, beginning with uh, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, His birth and His life and His uh, conquering and atoning death and resurrection. And then Pentecost and the church is born and all the time that uh, was spent in the growth and development of the church in the, in the first century. And you know, as we look at that church, we find a church that is not perfect. There is never going to be a perfect church that has people in it. <laughs> We're going to have to come to that uh, understanding. You know, if you haven't already reached that conclusion, you have to come to it pretty quickly. If you're looking for the perfect church, give up. <laughs> because until Jesus comes back and uh, purifies us completely and does away with sin, uh, there are going to be problems in the church. And, and some of the things that uh, caused a lot of the New Testament to be written were those very problems. Uh, Paul wrote addressing a number of problems. And boy, you know, you look at uh, some places uh, in the New Testament that he was dealing with and you think... Were they even saved? And yet he calls them saints. Uh, and so he dealt with some of those. And they give us examples because they teach us uh, already uh, the kinds of problems that we can get into. Uh, some of the problems in the church kind of solved themselves. You know, they started out with a, 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 an entirely Jewish congregation. And then the gospel began to spread, and it began to spread uh, to Samaria and to the Gentile world. And all of a sudden, you had a blending of culture. And uh, out of that grew all kinds of difficulties and stresses. Uh, as Christians tried to learn to get along with each other, coming from very different cultural backgrounds. That's always a challenge. It's still a challenge. And I confess to being a bit of an idealist. I'm still looking for that perfect church. But I, I want all the cultures to, to uh, merge together and blend and be happy and enjoy each other. And guess what? It just doesn't seem to happen. But it's interesting that as time went along in the first century, that uh, pretty soon the church began to take on its own personality. Uh, so much so that it was identified as being no longer Jewish. And this brought all kinds of problems in the Roman world because it was a new sect, a new uh, religion that was not authorized by Rome. And as a consequence of that, they began to experience uh, a lot of difficulty. And, and Hebrews and Peter and Jude uh, tell us about those and then as we move toward the end of the first century and John's first, second, and third letter, uh, we come to a, a new kind of difficulty, new problems that begin to crop up in the church. And, and those are true uh, even today. 
You know, I, I look at a man like John. In fact, I, I just uh, sent someone an email this morning. Uh, you've heard me say this before. It's kind of my, my ideal. Uh, I, I want to grow old graciously. I want to uh, be like John, who started out as one of those sons of thunder, you know, and he was ready to call down fire from heaven and deal with all the problems, you know, just swiftly. Man, you just hit the nail on the head. And as he got older and began to mellow and uh, began to uh, be more like Jesus, uh, John uh, turned into a gracious, a kind, a gentle old man who was like a, a tender grandfather. Took his uh, children on his uh, grandchildren on his knees, so to speak. And in his first letter, he writes and. Yeah, these words in Greek have always um, touched me. Uh, Techniamu, my little children, my little children. That's that's his heart, and that's how he writes. And uh, God chose him to uh, go all the way to the end of the first century, in essence, and to be the one to write the the final commentary on the church and to receive the revelation that would tell us what to anticipate in the future, how to be prepared, how to be ready, and uh, what to look for in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul uh, or John is the one uh, who, uh, through all those years, the one who leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, the one who loved the Lord Jesus so dearly, and uh, the one who was tempered by uh, 60 plus years of following him faithfully uh, to give us the revelation. So I want to talk to you this morning about some of the solutions and problems of the first uh, century and uh, how the story continues on from there. We're going to take a brief uh, dip into 1 John and pick out some highlights and then we're going to wrap up this morning with Revelation. And I hope that it will be a great encouragement to you. You know, uh, as Paul began to address some of the difficulties, I think about Corinth. Uh, you look at a church like Corinth that was, uh, oh my, uh, as he starts writing to them, uh, here's a church that started out uh, full of love for Jesus, uh, a church that was blessed with all kinds of uh, spiritual gifts, uh, a church that had all kind of dramatic, uh, miraculous things happening within it. And yet, as uh, time goes along, it's a church that is struggling with, with uh, sexual immorality, is struggling with uh, selfishness, it's struggling with gluttony, uh, it's uh, turning the Lord's Supper into this uh, crazy feast of gluttonous wine drinking and, uh, you know, stuffing themselves and uh, ignoring the people that had need. And, and you look at that church and you say, what in the world is going on in this church? And it really should sober us in a lot of ways to realize that even followers of Jesus Christ can get way off the path and uh, need someone to bring correction and call them back. And, and Paul begins to, to do that in his Corinthian letters. And then uh, as time goes along, 
to me, there are some sections and phrases in the New Testament that I find incredibly sad. Uh, one of them is where Jesus turns to his disciples. Remember, back in John's Gospel, when uh, he fed uh, the multitude and then they showed up on the other side of the lake and uh, he began to give them that discourse about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and just really getting in the face of, of those uh, Jewish people and uh, the crowds. And it says, and some of his disciples started going away and, uh, and leaving him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to? Are you going to leave as well? I, I just, to me, that is such a, a, a sad and tender moment as Jesus is wondering, you know, about the twelve. Where is your heart? Are you really committed? But another sad place in the New Testament is where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, All who are in Asia Minor have turned away from me. Uh, they've, they've all turned. Uh, these are churches that Paul started and churches that were started by his associates. These are congregations that he gave birth to uh, with blood and sweat and tears, literally. Uh, these are churches that he had expended his life on and loved them dearly. And yet, as time went along, uh, they began to be influenced by false teachers and they uh, turned away from him and began to, to follow the false teaching. He warned the Ephesians about it and they... Uh, Never got the warning, really. They didn't follow it. And so, as time went along, uh, they actually turned away from Paul. You know, as time did go along, <laughs> eventually they came back. But probably not in Paul's lifetime. Uh, one has the impression as we study extra-biblical history, uh, that which is outside of the New Testament, and we read the traditions of the church, uh, the early church, and what was written. Uh, Paul very likely was martyred for his faith in Christ before he ever saw those churches in Asia repent and come back to the truth. In fact, they're the very same churches that John uh, gives the letters to directly from Jesus as he um, begins to uh, address them in the New Testament. Excuse me while I see if it's my iPad that's dinging. And if it isn't, whosoever is, please discover it and stop it. Thank you. Um, stop your iPad. You can keep going. But just, <laughs> just make the ding stop. Um, and then an interesting thing happens. Jesus, in Matthew 24 had told his disciples, you remember, as they walked out of the temple, and they said, look at this magnificent temple, Lord. Isn't this amazing? This temple has been under construction longer than we've lived. And Jesus says to them, do you see these stones? I tell you, the day will come when not one of these stones is left upon the other. And the disciples said, Lord, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? 
Actually, those are two different questions. And I want to separate those for us this morning because we're going to look at them as two separate questions. You know, a lot of people uh, put the book of Revelation historically before A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And they consider the fact that Revelation is, is history. It's already done. It's already finished. It has nothing to do with us. It was taken care of back then. But I want to read you just a couple of things uh, to explain why that uh, is not true, why Revelation is still a future event uh, to occur. And this comes from some of the church fathers. Uh, the first one is the Shepherd of Hermas, who writes uh, in the early 2nd century, um, the great tribulation that is yet to come. He refers to that uh, after about 100 A.D. And then the Didache, which was probably kind of like an early uh, church manual guidance or whatever, uh, in the Didache, written around 100 A.D., uh, here's what it says. And then shall appear the world deceiver as son of God, and shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered into his hands, and he shall do iniquitous things which have never yet come to pass since the beginning. And then shall appear the signs of the truth. First, the sign of an outspreading uh, in the heavens. And then the sign of the sound of the trumpet. And third, the resurrection of the dead. Yet, not of all, but as it is said, the Lord shall come with and His saints with Him. Then the world shall see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven. And then Irenaeus, who wrote uh, somewhere in the middle of the second century, uh, had this to say, But when the Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months, and sit in the temple of Jerusalem, and then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous times of the kingdom, that is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance in which the kingdom of the Lord declared that many coming from the east and the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I read those to you because that's three examples of people who wrote between 1 and 200 A.D., long after the destruction of Jerusalem, and still viewed the revelation as a futuristic event that had not occurred. Some people try to put it before 70 A.D. Um, and say, well, that was all taken place uh, and it's no longer applicable to us other than as information about what the early church experienced. But that's not the case. Revelation is something that is yet to be uh, experienced by the church and by the world. And as we look at th that early uh, time of A.D. 70, the question that the disciples ask is really two questions. He treats it that way. When will these things be? That is, when will the temple and the, and the city of Jerusalem be destroyed? Now, what will be the sign of your coming? And you have to read Matthew 24 and 25 with those two questions in mind. But the interesting thing is that the general Titus, who was later to become emperor of Rome, the general Titus, as he went to uh, capture Jerusalem and overthrow the city in 70 A.D., 
so thoroughly destroyed the city. And, and they say it was probably accidental uh, that a firebrand landed on the temple, but the temple was burnt. And what they did was they leveled the city and they pushed the walls down and they pushed the temple walls down to the point that uh, some later people said, uh, and Josephus records this, that if you were to go to Jerusalem, it would appear as if it had never been inhabited and there had never been a city there. Literally, not one stone was left upon another uh, at that period of time in the destruction of Jerusalem. Some of the towers were left and some things like that. And, of course, there's evidence today. Those of you that have visited have seen the ruins uh, uh, and some of the structures. But as far as that ancient temple goes, um, the, the city of Jerusalem was leveled. And we have no information about that in the New Testament. It's a strangely quiet period of time that goes on for a good while. Uh, we don't hear anything from the last writings of Paul in the mid-60s until the time that John shows up, perhaps in the late 80s, to write his final letter. So there's like 20 years uh, that we might call the New Testament silent years. Uh, where the church has been persecuted, it's becoming defined, uh, it's, it's uh, developing its own identity. Some of the problems are being ironed out, but new ones are cropping up. And what we discover as John begins to write his first letter, uh, probably to the church at Ephesus, or at least to be circulated uh, in those churches of Asia Minor, there were heresies that began to come into play in the latter part of the first century that we still struggle with in one way or another today. They were the early Gnostic heresies. And I put a comment in my notes, and, and I want to kind of fix this in your mind. Whenever people get into trouble, it's nearly always about Jesus. They misunderstand or uh, get wrong who Jesus really is. And because of that prime fallacy, in one way or another, they're led into error. Now, we may think that that's isolated just to the cults, but really it isn't. The church struggles with those misnomers and misunderstandings. In fact, the most common view of the church that affects us is the failure to realize that he was fully human as if he were not God at all. That gets us into a lot of trouble and, and causes us to excuse a lot of behavior that we have no business excusing. He is as much God as if He were not man at all. And He is as much man as if He were not God at all. We have a hard time getting our head around that. Well, so did those people in the latter part of the first century. And as Gnosticism 
which was kind of a secret knowledge. That's where the word gnosis comes from. It was kind of a secret knowledge about what is the real truth, you know? you got to get an angel to give you uh, a golden uh, a book and you have to have golden glasses kind of thing to read and understand it. You've got to get this special revelation. And if you have that, um, then you'll, you'll have this insight that will tell you the real truth. And as this so-called secret knowledge that was mediated by angels and uh, had to do with symbols and all kinds of crazy and bizarre things begin to creep into the church, it caused major trouble. Because if you believe that Jesus is just a man, how could He die for the sins of all the world? How could He be incarnate the Son of God? How could He be the Creator of all things, as John says in his Gospel. And if you believe that He was only a spirit God who only appeared to have a body, but didn't have a real body, then how could He again have died on the cross and shed blood for human beings who are physical beings? Jesus Christ had to be fully man in a physical body and fully God in His divine nature. He had to be both in order to be the perfect Lamb of God that could die the substitutionary death and take away the sins of the world. But further, as you get into that kind of Gnostic heresy that was beginning to develop, it has to do with the idea of dualism. The idea that anything of the spirit is good and anything of the flesh or the body is evil. And I want to tell you, this is not an ancient uh, mystic doctrine only. Uh, I remember when I was in high school that I, was a, a, I had started a, a fellowship of Christian students a group on campus. And we were affiliated with a well-known Bible college group in Florida that one of their people would come out and kind of lead Bible studies. And it came to find out that the leader, the president of that Bible college, it was housed at that time in a hotel that had been purchased for that purpose, and uh, not only was he sleeping with a number of the girls in the school and other women, but he was encouraging um, any kind of living among the students. And when asked, why are you doing this? He quoted 1 John 3, the one who is born of God cannot sin. And so we're not sinning. And there's no help for the body, so why bother doing anything about it? There's nothing you can do for the body, but our spirit is saved. To his credit, someone very graciously and prayerfully explained to him the Scriptures, and he was broken with repentance over the error of his ways. But the amazing thing is that he ever believed it in the first place. 
And the, the reality is, is that's what was happening among some of the people in the end of the first century. They were saying, well, nothing can, uh, my body can't do anything for me of spiritual value, and it frankly doesn't matter what I do with it. It's not going to affect my spirit, which is entirely separate and good. And so I can live however I please. Or Jesus could not have had a body because we know that flesh is evil and, and Jesus could not have been evil, so therefore He could not have had a body. Do you know how that expresses itself by Christians today? As long as I'm in the flesh, I'm going to sin. What are you saying? What do you mean? Think about it. Are you telling me that you cannot keep from sinning because you're in a physical body? You're wrong. God made this body. And He said, it is very good. There's nothing wrong with my body. It's the me living in it that has the problem. But my body is not my sin instrument. I use it in sin, but I'm the one who has the difficulty. And if we think that as long as we're in the body, we can never live in victory, what is that going to allow you to do? Excuse your misbehavior. Well, that's just the way I am. And as long as I'm in this body, I'm going to sin. Stop it. Stop. That's what John Wesley answered to a Calvinistic woman who came up to him one uh, Sunday after a service. And uh, she was a little irate at his teaching on holiness. And she said, Mr. Wesley... I'll have you understand, I sin every day in every way, in thought and word and deed. And he looked at her and he said, well, madam, you better stop it. (laughs) End of story. Don't quote the catechism. Deal with it. Get before God and ask the Holy Spirit to transform you. And then this body can be an instrument of righteousness. You see how you get something wrong about Jesus and it messes up your whole life. And John was writing to correct those things. Well, wow, I better go on. Um, So, here's what John had to say in his first letter. Very briefly, we're we're flying over the New Testament. We're going to take a low pass here for a moment. And then we're coming back up to move on to Revelation. But John said, I've written these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13. How many of you know that verse? How many of you have quoted that verse to someone who just prayed the sinner's prayer to receive Jesus Christ? Have you ever used that? Uh, Welcome to the family. According to the Scripture, now you can know that you have eternal life. Ah, wait a minute. There's a test they have to pass. And John gives the test. 
He's trying to awaken believers to the reality of what is true. And he gives three questions that we are to ask ourselves. You can't ask yourself this in the first 30 seconds after you prayed the prayer of repentance. You have to give a little time to see if the Spirit of God is developing within you. And here's what he says. Question number one. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His truth is not in us. But the, 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 the question is, do you walk in the light as He is in the light? Are you walking with Jesus on the Jesus road every day? Is that who you are? Are you in the yoke with Jesus? Are you walking along with Him? Question number two. He says, if we say that we love God and our brother comes to us and says, I have a need. And we say to him, uh, well, uh, the Lord bless you. The Lord take care of you. Uh, be warmed and filled. <laughs> but we do nothing to meet his need, even though we have it in our pantry or our wallet or in some other uh, way that we can reach out and practically love and help the brother. John says, if you do not love your brother, the love of God is not in you. So, check yourself out. See, do I love my fellow believers? Do I care for them? <laughs> well, I don't know what's up here, but uh, let's see. Oh, there, it's perfect, right there. A little sunburn on the top of the feet, you know. Do you, uh, are you willing to give some healing salve? Are you willing to serve your brother and sister? Are you willing to meet the need out of your own pocket as you love and care for one another? Um, if the love of our brother is not practical, how does the love of God dwell in you? And then he says, um, if we do not make a practice of intentional, or do we do not make a practice of intentional, and willful disobedience. That's what he means when he says, if we are begotten of God, we do not sin. Indeed, we cannot sin because we have been born of God. What he's telling us is, you cannot continue to willfully, intentionally, spitefully, deliberately do what you know is wrong and Call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Friends, there's a ton of stuff we don't know yet. <laughs> That's why sanctification takes a long time. Uh, but there's plenty we do know. And if you know it's wrong, God gives the power of the Holy Spirit not to do it. And if you continue to willfully sin and intentionally disobey God, with indifference. But the question of Scripture is, have you met Him? Do you know Him? How can you despise Him like that? 
And so John says, ask yourself these three questions. Do I walk in the light? Do I love the brethren? Am I guilty of persistent, willful sin? Well, if I walk in the light, if I love my brother, and if I desire with all my heart to obey Jesus Christ, even if I stumble and fall, even if I hate myself when I do, even if I keep pleading for mercy and grace to overcome, but I hate sin and I love Jesus, then you may know that you have eternal life. He's trying to fix the problem of this mistaken notion that comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus. Well, you know, the Scripture says it gets worse before it gets better. And as John is writing from the Isle of Patmos, Patmos was west of that little area that comes down in the churches of Asia Minor. He could kind of look out toward land and realize visually in his mind where all those churches were. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard the voice of someone speaking to him. And all of a sudden, John, who had stood with the twelve and others on the day that he watched Jesus begin to rise from the ground and ascend into the air and disappear in the clouds, and he saw an angel come and say, Why are you standing around looking into the heavens? This same Jesus which has gone away from you, will come again just exactly like he left. And John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And as it were ahead of time, he sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, he falls at his feet like a dead man because he is so astounded at the glory and the majesty of the triumphant and victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus says to him, I want you to write a letter to the churches. And this is what I want you to say. And Jesus begins to dictate a letter to each one of the churches. You know, the letter to the church at Laodicea, which appears last in the list, ends... Uh, with with a uh, poignant statement. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open that door and allow me to come in, I will sit at supper and have fellowship with him. I'm just yearning to get into your heart. I, I just want to come and dine with you. I want you to come back to your first love. I want you to come back to putting me first. This is the church at the end of the first century. And Jesus is saying, please come back to me. Please let's sit down and eat together and have fellowship. You know, there are a number of views of the letters to the churches. And sometimes prophetic words have an immediate application. And then they also have 
uh, a sort of a panoramic futuristic application. And one of the things that I find fascinating is if you study the, the history of the church from the first century until the present, and you superimpose the messages to the seven churches upon different periods of church history, it's remarkable how closely they fit. And I wonder if it won't be that the church at the end of the age will be a church like Laodicea, that, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, sitting, back like, sitting back like fat cats, we think we've got it made, we have everything we need, we've got all this technology, we've got all this money, we've got all this wealth, we're doing so well, uh, but oh my, where is Jesus? We don't realize that we are blind and poor and naked and, and how desperately we need Him. And, and we're living as if He were not even essential. Uh, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? And I wonder if the church at Laodicea is not a picture also of the church at the end of the age. I want to be one of those who has invited Jesus in to that continued fellowship uh, in loving Him. And then John says he was caught up into the heavens and God began to show him things that was to come. And one of the things that He uh, was uh, uh, unveiled to him was that the devil that old serpent was going to have a last fling. He was going to come to earth like he'd never come before in fury and with the violence of a fiery dragon. And he was going to do everything he could to corrupt all of the human beings on the planet and turn them away from God. But then, following a season of time with what is known as the Antichrist, then Jesus Christ will come uh, with all of His saints and He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords triumphantly appearing uh, just in the, the nick of time to spare the remnant and to rescue Jerusalem and the Israelites and He will bring the saints with Him and we will enter this glorious period of the um, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And then John saw a heavenly city at the very end. Uh, he saw a new heaven and a new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. And he saw uh, what the future of the church would be. And God encouraged him and told him to write this letter to the churches and distributed among them that everyone who read it would receive a blessing because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And no matter how bad it gets or how hard it seems, no matter what the violence, no matter what the tribulation, no matter what the difficulty, Jesus wants His people to know, I'm coming back for you. I'm going to receive you to Myself. I am the, the Lamb of God. I'm the Bridegroom. I'm coming for My Bride. We're going to be celebrating at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to have a time of, of bliss that will last for eternity. Because I'm coming for you. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. I'm coming for you. That's the message as we move toward the end of Revelation. 
And so everyone that has this hope in him, John says, purifies himself just as he is pure. And at the end of of the revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we say this morning, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Maranatha, come for your Bride. We are waiting for the day when you will come again. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your promise to us. Thank you that you have not left us alone that You have promised never to leave or forsake us, and that You have promised that not even death would separate us from Your return, but that when the trumpet of God sounds, those of us that have been abiding in Your presence uh, between our death and Your return will rise from the ground, and then those that are alive are going to be caught up together with them to meet You in the air. And so shall we ever be with You, Lord Jesus. You have guaranteed us this certain hope and promise. And we can encourage one another with these words. And we can comfort one another with these words. That we sorrow uh, in death not as those that have no hope, but we are among those who have great confidence that, Lord Jesus, You have conquered death and hell and the grave and that we will reign forever with You. And we look forward to Your coming. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.